Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, March 18th. Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers are Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. Ben, we are two weeks away from uh, the opening of the 2021 regular season for the Toronto Blue Jays. And that cannot come two weeks soon enough for a lot of reasons. Primary among them, pitchers starting to get hurt. Guys are starting to get injured uh, here at spring training, which is something that happens every spring. But for the Blue Jays, whose pitching staff will say was not the strength of this club, uh, they've been dealt a, a couple of blows here recently with Nate Pearson reaggravating a groin injury that he picked up earlier in camp and Thomas Hatch coming out of his start with uh, elbow discomfort the other day uh, on Wednesday here. Uh, ben, let's start with Pearson. We were speculating that he was not going to be ready for opening day when he originally hurt his groin. Club still not saying that's a sure thing. I feel pretty confident in suggesting that Nate Pearson is not going to be ready for opening day of the 2021 season. Likely, depending on how he recovers, not towards late April, perhaps even early May. Yeah, I mean, the timelines are always a a moving target, but very safe to say opening day just doesn't look realistic. And that's that's tough for Pearson. It's tough for this Blue Jays team. He was, you know, as you start to map out what the rotation could look like, ideally, I think for a lot of people, he would have been that number two, the guy behind Ryu with the most upside. And it's been two weeks now that he's been battling this groin issue. Two weeks to go before opening day. That's not enough time, especially because, you know, we have no indication that he's actually back at full strength. So even once he gets to full strength, whenever that is, it will take time again to ramp up. So as you said, far from ideal. I think there's also the developmental cost, right? We think about guys like Alec Manoa, Simeon Woods Richardson, these prospects. We're getting the chance to pitch in spring training and learn from these opportunities. And that's so great for them. But, you know, Pearson's not that much older. He's got a year on Manoa doesn't have a ton of pro experience. This should be a chance for Nate Pearson to be testing himself. Doesn't get to do it right now. Yeah, more than anything, you just want him pitching right yeah. now. Um, and, and he's not able to do it. You know, it's it's interesting with, with the groin injury reoccurring. Like, I would assume that, you know, he was working really hard to get back as, as early in the season as possible. And so I wonder if he'll be more cautious this time around and make sure that, like, it, they, you know, you really get that injury out of there and you really get him over it. You don't want this to be something that he's battling throughout the season and that he's carrying throughout the year because look, the most important thing is not that Nate Pearson is available to pitch in the first series of the season or the third or the fourth series. It's that he is available to pitch in September and October and is that he is peaking then and he is like feeling his best and effective and giving you good innings at that point in the year. So you want to take this this point in the season to really smooth that out and really get him over that that injury. Go ahead, Ben. No, no, I I agree with you. You know, and it reminds me a little of George Springer in that discussion we had a couple of weeks ago, where it's kind of like, you know what, this is the time to rest. And no doubt, the same logic applies here. Got to rest it. I mean, at the same time, and I and I agree with you too that September, October, those are the most important months. But you also have to be in a position where you're contending. <laughs> in those months, right? Like if they're 500 on September 1st and Nate Pearson is ready to go and he's feeling amazing, you're kind of, you know, you have half of a solution there. Like, so they've, they've got to probably use Nate Pearson's ability to get them through those first 130 games of the season. And, and, and to be fair, we still expect that to happen, but not to start the year. 
Yeah, and this so this means that Ross Stripling is likely to make a start um, there in the first week for for the Blue Jays, whereas he might not have made a start if Nate Pearson was healthy. Although he also might have if the Blue Jays had decided to roll six starters or if they had done some interesting things with their rotation, as much as their rotation will resemble a rotation this season. Um, I think the the big sort of downstream effect is that it opens a spot in the bullpen for a long guy and for somebody who can give you some length and whether that's going to be like an Anthony Kay, a Trent Thornton or a TJ Zoik even I think that is like really the sort of impact from Nate Pearson not being ready for the start of the season it's interesting you would think it would be more of an impact on the rotation but I think it's actually more of an impact on the bullpen yeah maybe in a kind of practical game-to-game sense, right? You're looking at that roster. You're looking at that pitching staff. That might be where you feel the absence of, of Pearson the most, um, for sure. So that's that's one variable there. And like I said, I mean, it's just... It, it's not that you necessarily connect dots between these injuries that Pearson's had over the years because he got hit by a blind drive in the elbow, you know? Like, that's totally unpredictable. That's like the definition of a fluke injury. Last year, all right, that was a flexor strain. That's not a fluke injury. That's a usage just the pitchers get hurt injury and then the groin, you know, who knows? So I'm not trying to connect dots here, but every time a pitcher developing pitcher misses time, it's time that he's, he's missing to improve, you know, to, to get those reps in, to build his confidence, to work on his off speed, whatever advantage pitchers get out of, of facing the top competition and testing themselves. Pearson's not getting that right now. And it's something that could have um, opened a, an opportunity, created an opportunity for Thomas Hatch to sneak onto this roster. But that as well seems extremely unlikely now after he comes out of Wednesday's outing with, with the elbow discomfort. And Ben, like you mentioned, the pitchers getting hurt thing. I mean, pitchers get hurt. And that one was difficult to watch. And, and as we sit here now on, on Thursday, March 18th, we don't know the results of his MRI. Like We don't know what the official injury is. We're not going to speculate on it. But I mean, just watching him have to call out for the trainer, watch him come off the mound, you know, after throwing that pitch and like clearly not feeling right and clearly processing a lot of emotion and dealing with a lot of things. I mean, that's one of those ones that just like covering this game and getting to know pitchers and athletes and how hard they work and just how much goes into to being at that level. Like that is one of the the toughest ones to watch. It's like you were saying with like something acute, like a comeback or like Nate Pearson caught. It's like, okay, yeah, you broke a bone on a comebacker, but like, you know, that, that that's a freak injury and we kind of know the timeline for that. And you can feel pretty confident that the guy will be able to get over that. But like when it's something like this, like a, a, an elbow issue and it's something that clearly for a number of pitches before the one where he really was feeling it, it's clearly something he was working through, something he was carrying on the mound. Those are the ones that I find just just really hard to watch. Oh, for sure. I mean, you you watch enough baseball and you see them. You know, I think back to Tim Mesa, end of 2019. Yeah, that's another one. You see them usually every year. Or so whether it's a visiting pitcher, or Blue Jays pitcher, they definitely happen. It's always tough to watch. And like you said, if you go back through it and shy in his piece on the injury kind of goes through and shows some of those actions that you're talking about there, Arden, where it's like, you know, he's obviously in some sort of discomfort and yet he keeps trying to pitch. And I mean, hindsight is 2020. Obviously, knowing what we know now, of course, he shouldn't have even been pitching beyond that initial bit of soreness. But in the moment, pitchers work through things. Is it a cramp? Is it not? Like, it's hard to know. And, and of course, he's the guy who knows his body the best. So you trust him and it just didn't work out this time. Well, and that's always the push-pull for pitchers, right? Because I think that 
generally speaking, every MLB pitcher is injured yeah. to some degree at all <laughs> times, you know, like not like famously, you know, like, like surgeons, doctors will tell you, like you take an MRI on any MLB pitcher's arm and or elbow and shoulder, you know, if you go in there arthroscopically, like they'll find something to do. <laughs> they'll find some fraying, they'll find some tearing, they'll find a procedure they can complete. Trent Thornton, man, like I, we were just talking about him last year or two years ago. And then at the beginning of last season had four bone chips floating around in his elbow to the size of molars and he was pitching through that like and he was he was showing me on zoom like how he could move them around in his elbow and he got to a point during an outing last year where one of them got lodged and like locked up his arm and so he couldn't extend his arm he already could not extend his arm fully or flex his arm fully but then it locked it at like a 65 degree angle type of deal and he had to like wedge out this bone <laughs> chip from his elbow like imagine that oh, this guy's competing in the major leagues going through this like moving around bone chips in his elbow like every pitcher is going through something like that and that you're referring to it is kind of the push-pull of like what is the discomfort and the pain that pitchers pitch through all the time and are actually kind of like expected to pitch through and feel like they have to pitch through because they have to be on the mound in order to make money and in order to like continue their big league career and in order to keep getting innings and starts and to get through their zero to three years, get to ARB, have counting stats where they can get rewarded there and then hopefully be healthy enough to get a, a free agent deal and finally get paid on the back end of their careers. Like where is the threshold between that discomfort and that pain that you are always dealing with on the mound and then something that is a more drastic injury and i think it can it can turn pretty quickly think about masahiro tanaka who you know for years and years in the major leagues when he was with the yankees you know there was always this expectation that he's one pitch away and he had i'm not sure if it was a partial tear or what the exact you know injury description was but he wasn't totally right and yet he was able to pitch through it and get great results i mean right now the padres with denelson lamette same thing like there's something going on there no one knows the exact severity. I mean, maybe Lamette does, maybe AJ Preller, but pretty much it's a it's an open secret though across the game that he's pitching through some stuff. And with some guys, it works. And you can be Masahiro Tanaka and deliver full value on a seven-year, I think it was $155 million deal. And then in some cases, it just it doesn't work. And we don't know where Thomas Hatch is going to end up on that. I mean, as we record this, we haven't heard from the Blue Jays, what the results of that MRI will be. Yeah, no, it, like it, there's a possibility it's just a nerve thing. There's a possibility it's not as bad as, as it looked. But like you mentioned with Tanaka and with you know UCL tears, like that's that's not like an acute trauma thing, UCL tear. It's not like you just like throw one pitch and they're like you just tore your whole UCL. Like that is something that develops over time. And that is like wear and tear. Like the ligament kind of degrades with like every time you throw this little rock at 95 miles per hour, like you just degrade it a little bit more, a little bit more. Like a lot of times you will see players opt for conservative treatment on UCL tears, just partial tears, right? That you can get a PRP injection, you know, you can just like rest and just try to like basically slow things down and buy yourself some time so that you can keep pitching with a partially torn ligament like Tanaka was. But that gets back to what I was saying before you're still going to feel that every time you take the mound. And that's still going to take a ton of work before games, between starts, just to get your arm to a place where you're able to go out there and compete 
and execute. It's kind of like that. It's like such a classic misconception that Tommy John surgery somehow like makes pitchers better. You know what I mean? Because they often like come back throwing better than they were prior to it. Like you see now like Tim Mesa is out here, like, you know, mid nineties and his stuff looks electric. It's like, well, yeah, because he was pitching injured prior to that because he was pitching through pain before, you know, he was compensating for this pitchers who right up until look at Ken Giles, right? Like right up until the point that you get, Tommy John surgery, like you were clearly pitching through a very serious injury that's going to impact your stuff, you know, and, and so you get Tommy John and you take 12 to 18 months to not throw and to actually repair your injury and to actually heal. Yeah, no kidding. You're going to come back and look pretty good. You took 12 to 18 months off of doing this incredibly unnatural thing that all pitchers do. The other side of that is there is like tremendous pressure on pitchers to continue to compete and to perform because there's always this wave of other dudes coming from beneath you in the system and being drafted every year, you know, trying to take your job, right? Like Tim Mesa off the 40 man roster, right? After getting his Tommy John surgery. Now he's back in camp as a non-roster invitee, like trying to fight his way back on so that he can make the big league minimum. Like you take 12 to 18 months off at a certain point in your career. Look at Ken Giles, right? And what, it looked like he might be able to get in free agency and, you know, goes off for Tommy John surgery and doesn't get anywhere close to that. This is why pitchers pitch through these things, but it is such a balancing act for guys when they're on the mound pitching with discomfort. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is that balancing act. And I guess every pitcher has to navigate that himself and figure out what that threshold of pain looks like, what's going too far. That's a really difficult thing, I'm sure. And, you know, again, we don't know exactly where it's going to lead for Thomas Hatch. You think lots of guys, you know, sometimes it's a little rest and rehab and they're back. Lots of guys, it's under, under the knife and you're, you're out for 12 to 18 months. So in the meantime, the Jays pitching depth is clearly compromised with no Pearson, no Thomas Hatch. I mean, that's, those are two guys that in this rotation should have been contributors and, and may still be, of course, in Pearson's case, he will still be a contributor to this staff, but you think about the Jays went into this season trying to do a volume game, trying to say we yeah. have a lot of guys that we're comfortable with and we believe the volume will maybe make up for the fact that there's not as much impact. And now that volume is starting to decrease. Well, and you mentioned Pearson. Like, that's a good point, right? Like That's why the, the Blue Jays built as much depth as, as they did. And we've got an entire season to talk about you know Blue Jays pitching depth and who's going to fill in the rotation. And we're going to be having plenty of these conversations about pitchers getting hurt this year, man. Like I really think coming off yeah. of a, the disruption to everybody's rhythm and, and routine last season, it is like truly unprecedented times in MLB. I know that word gets thrown around a lot right here in 2020, 2021, but really like even, you know, in wartime situations, like MLB hasn't been through something like this. And I don't think any organization actually knows how arms are going to respond and how many pitchers are, you know, going to be injured this year, aren't going to be able to answer the bell. But I mean, you mentioned Pearson and you're right. We can't connect the dots between the injuries he has suffered throughout his career. What we do know is he throws awfully hard. And there, you know, there does seem to be somewhat of a correlation between like throwing really, really hard and suffering injuries. Like, like, so like you think about like what pitching actually is, you are essentially just transferring force or energy from the ground through you into a baseball to propel it forward. Like I, like I understand that's like the psilocybin way of looking at it, but like, that is what it is, right? You are just the conduit. Like you're just 
kind of in the middle. And the more velocity you are putting into that baseball that you were hurling towards the plate, I mean, that means more energy transferring through you, right? And that means there are more ways that things can go wrong. You know, especially if you're like 6'6", 260, there's a lot of like joints and tissue and muscle and ligaments in there where stuff can go awry if your movement patterns aren't efficient, you know, if, if you aren't, you know, pitching in, in a way that, um, like you, like you ever look at those freeze frames of pitchers, like at the height of their delivery, right before they're about to deliver the ball. And like, you look at the positions that their arms are oh, in. Oh yeah. You look at like the close up of their elbow and you look at like the way yeah. the veins pop and it's like, man, that's yeah, that's pretty intense. Yeah, this is not natural. And this is why, you know, clubs are investing as much as they are in biomechanics, right? right? And in motion capture and in trying to iron out some of these um, movement inefficiencies so that players can better transfer that that energy into the ball so that you aren't at risk of injury. But it is also kind of like the double edged sword of like high velocity, right? You look at and you look at a guy like Nate Pearson. This is a guy who does everything right. Like this is a guy who has a personalized arm care routine. This is a guy who's working at drive line to to find those movement movement pattern inefficiencies. Like this is a guy who eats right. Remember he was on the podcast last year and he was telling us all about his routine. He pitches with like a, a device on his wrist that tracks his like heart rate variability, tracks his workload in between outings. He but does no everything. Way. But you can't. Well, that's the thing, right? Like yeah. he does everything you're supposed to do and still obviously had the flexor situation last year. So like even a guy who is like nailing everything and covering all of his bases can still bump up against something like this. It's just a situation where every pitcher is going to be injured. <laughs> like every yeah. pitcher gets hurt. It's unbelievable. You know, what? like do you watch what Jacob deGrom does for the Mets? It's amazing. It's incredible watching him through like a hundred in spring games is nuts, but there's always got to be that little bit of your mind that's watching that and being like, man, I hope this lasts, man. I hope he can do this for a while. Totally. And I, you know, DeGrom's an interesting example because I have that same thought sometimes when you see the hundred or the 99 or, you know, he's basically sitting in that range in a spring game. It's just incredible. But at the same time, you know, DeGrom, who I want to say, I should have this in front of me, I want to say he's 33 years old. Um, you know, he's not the youngest player out there. And this is when he's peaking. And I think that he's a reminder that pitching a lot of the time just takes a while to fully develop. And it, it's in contrast to the young position players that we're seeing where you have Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr., Fernando Tatis. I mean, these guys are historically just like unbelievable players. They are 21, 22 years old. They're in their prime right away. Best players in baseball right away. But for pitching, it just doesn't seem to work that way these days. And, you know, whether it's Verlander and Scherzer maintaining their success deep, deep into their 30s, you know, obviously DeGrom, Cole, um, Bieber. You know, Bieber's relatively young compared to those guys, but he's still a college pitcher. He's still not 22 years old, you know. So I think that the best pitchers in baseball tend to need some time and so I would use that as a bit of a optimistic counterpoint to the Pearson throws hard stuff, because, you know, I see some of this, I'm sure, I'm sure you see it too, Arden, where it's like, you know, Pearson is, he's just another Aaron Sanchez, which by the way, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Cause Sanchez, you know, led the league in ERA five years ago. And so there are worse outcomes in this world than being Aaron Sanchez. But, you know, even if Pearson were to reach those heights and plateau there, 
that probably would be disappointing given the amount of expectations surrounding him. But I think we just got to be patient when it comes to the pitchers that we watch, the young pitchers that we watch coming up in Major League Baseball. And so for the Tigers, maybe that's Casey Mize. For the Blue Jays, it's Nate Pearson. Every organization has these guys coming up and they're just not all going to be at the height of their potential right away. It's going to take some time. Yeah, miss me with the Aaron Sanchez comparisons, uh, you know, <laughs> people on Twitter and the replies, right? Like, you know, and I'm sure you see this when you, you update Nate Pearson's status and you get like gifts of band-aids and things uh-huh. like just you have no idea, you cowards. Like you have no yeah. idea what these guys are going through. Like you have no idea how how much stuff Aaron Sanchez pitched through until literally like he could no longer grip the ball. Yeah, it's this is what we've been saying for like throughout this segment is that like pitchers are going through like pitching through a lot of discomfort and a lot of pain when they're out there, you know. Like, and you hear the like people will say, "Well, well, you know, Randy Johnson never got hurt, and like, you know, Nolan Ryan threw nine thousand innings a season, and like, why can't today's pitchers do that? They're soft, and like, no, like those guys were outliers, extreme, extreme." outliers you know how many thousands of pitchers in that era like never made it or never made it to the big leagues because they just shredded their arms and they had plenty of velo and plenty of ability and just never got there or even guys who did get to the big leagues but because of the toll the tax that was paid to get there washed away because once they were there their labrum was friggin' spaghetti squash and those guys ended up you know managing a hotel chain or they yeah. went back to school and became a professor teacher or something like they, we don't even know their names no yeah that's like randy, the only thing you can learn from like pointing at you know randy johnson and nolan ryan and guys like that is that like you you have fallen victim to survivorship bias really right yeah. like it, it's just and, but the, this, that's the thing with today's um, era is also that like the the velocity like toothpaste is out of the tube. Like it's not going. We're not reverting to soft tossers. Like I don't think that all of a sudden you're gonna see like Marco Estrada's and Joey Murray's like coming out of you know like populating entire AAA staffs. Like it's guys are throwing harder and harder, and every bullpen is full of like these hulking dudes with slicked back hair who throw these like <laughs> upper 90s fastballs with some sort of crazy spinning breaking weapon. The hair is always slicked back. Always. It is always, always. Uh, and because that has been like institutionalized to the grassroots level, right? Where like now, like amateurs, like teenagers understand, okay, if I want to get noticed by all these scouts who show up to our games with radar guns, I gotta put a big number on that guy's radar gun. And when I go and, and throw on, you know, at the, uh, on a rap Soto, or I go and pitch somewhere where there's track, man, like I got to spin my stuff like crazy. So I'm going to throw really hard with a ton of spin and that's how I'm going to get drafted or that's how I'm going to get signed out of the Caribbean. And that's like how I'm going to try to live my dream. So like, I that's why you're getting all these, you know, and people at the grassroots level have been like complaining about this for years about how like, kids are getting hurt earlier than ever kids are getting tommy john in high school and because everybody's trying to throw super hard but i'd like that toothpaste is not going back into the tube like this is where it is so this is all to say like i just really think that you know like the next frontier of baseball innovation is going to be like keeping players on the field is going to be health and like injury prevention because right now like there isn't even really a reliable way to predict injury other than like 
past injury. Like that's the one sort of reliable predictor of future injury is past injury. Otherwise, like it's so hard to tell, like Thomas Hatch might be able to get through that outing on Wednesday, like 99 times out of a hundred. And then he hits that 100th time and he has to come out of the game and, and who knows where he's going. Right. But like most that guy was clearly pitching through something for a while. Thomas Hatch had to sit out all of the 2015 college season with the UCL sprain. And then 2016, when he was drafted by the Cubs, after pitching a year at college, they didn't send him out to the minors. They shut him down for the rest of the year and didn't send him out because they said, hey, you need to rest and, and, and you need to like get over what you are dealing with. So like, clearly he was pitching through something for a while, but you just don't have a way of predicting that as a club. So I think that whichever team can like biomechanically like figure this out, which is like so, so hard to do. But what are you going to do? You're going to try to catch up in the like analytics arms race, which was run freaking 15 years ago, or the player development arms race, which has already been running for a while. Like that's the next one is like keeping guys on the field and, and figuring out a way to just, because that's a massive advantage is if you can actually keep your players healthy and competing more often than, than your competitors. For sure. And I mean, if even if you nudge it forward a couple percentage points, that's probably a success. I mean, I don't think anyone's stopping arm injuries. I just don't. No. I think um, I think as long as guys are throwing max effort, which as you say, that is the way things go. I mean, this, that's the game. You know, if that's the case, then guys are going to get hurt. And as you say, you're not going back because realistically, some of these pitchers who are on the injured list, and we're going to continually see guys placed on the injured list this year, both because teams want to be cautious and because guys will get hurt. But some of those guys could probably pitch at 80% effort and be 80% effective. That's just not the expectation. That's not what teams ask of guys. They want 100% effort. They want 100% effectiveness. And so, you know, maybe in the 70s, it was different. Or maybe the drop-off in the 70s was so big that, you know, or the 60s, pick your decade, that it was so big that to go from Don Drysdale to the seventh guy in the Dodgers bullpen was like actually just a cliff you did not want to fall off of. Whereas now the Dodgers bullpen is just loaded with these other guys who can step up. So there's a huge difference. I, I do want to go back just to the age point here to throw a few ages out. And this is totally anecdotal, totally unscientific. Just did this while you were chatting there, Arden. So a few ages for you. Jacob deGrom, 32. Shane Bieber, okay, he's young, but he's 25. He's not 21. Kenta Maeda. These, by the way, this is from the Cy Young voting in um, you know, 2020. So these are the best pitchers last year. Great. Kenta Maeda, 32. Hyunjin Ryu, 33. Garrett Cole, 30. Lucas Giolito, he's 26. But by the way, a couple of years ago in 2018, he literally led the league in walks and earned runs. So all of this to say that it takes time for these guys to be really good. And sometimes it takes injuries. Sometimes it takes experience. And sometimes it takes working through some ugly results at the major league level. And doesn't mean Nate Pearson's going to be good because a lot of high prospects still suck and they still don't <laughs> deliver on their promise. But we can't say that Nate Pearson won't be good. That's, no. that's where I like, don't say that he won't be good. That's, no. that's the one thing that I would hope people can, can agree on. No, it's an absurd thing to say. And like, what a, what a reversal in 12 months. Remember what we were saying about Nate Pearson, what everybody was saying about Nate Pearson 12 months ago. Like, I'll never forget being at that game in Bradenton against the Pirates when he made like some really good Pirates hitters look like amateurs, like and look foolish. Um, and Nate Pearson had like the kind of the arc that Alec Manoa is on right now at Blue Jays yeah. camp. That's what Nate Pearson was on. 
this right. time um, last year. I feel like, wasn't Dallas Keuchel uh, up there in the Cy Young? He was. Uh, I didn't get to all last leagues, year too, but yes. But uh, that's another like veteran guy. Lance Lynn has been like one of the most underrated totally. dudes of the last you know two to three seasons. Yeah, Charlie Morton. There are a lot of old yeah. good pitchers. Jay Hat pitched really yeah. effectively into his mid thirties. His thirties were way better than his twenties, and, and this is anecdotal. Like you know, you could do a whole study on it, but you just don't see guys. And maybe Kamar Rocker and 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 Jack Leiter will will be the counterpoint to this, and I hope it happens. But you rarely see guys go straight out of the draft to just being these yeah. or, or out of high school. I mean, that never happens to just being these dominant players the way that we've seen with on the position player side. No, that, that might be a little bit of the survivorship bias too, though, if we're just p- pointing to the like 10 effective mid-30s guys still throwing in right. MLB, right? Like how many guys have you know bled away and those are just the ones that are left? Yeah, but okay, here's he, he, like how many how many elite 21 to 23-year-old major league pitchers are there? Yeah, I know. It's yeah, it's small. Honestly, yeah. like it's For sure. there's not that many of them. No, it's like Pitching these days in the majors with it, organizationally, it's just like it's like a war of attrition. Like you just get as much of it as possible and you see what works out. And like you see who doesn't get hurt and you, you know, see who's still effective and you see who's able to get outs and like and you just kind of at the end you see what you're left with, right? It's like you go on like these bombing runs in like World <laughs> War II or something. It's like you see which planes come back, right? Like yeah. that's kind of what it becomes is this war of attrition. You mentioned the bullpens, right? With the Dodgers, where it's like, oh, like this guy is underperforming right now and that guy's hurt and we've overused this guy. Okay, just pull the friggin' paper towel dispenser down and here's another dude with slick back hair throw a 98 with this ridiculous slider and like the the Rays bullpen has been similar recently like that's something that we see a lot of obviously covering the blue jays and hey toronto's bullpen is starting to look a little bit like that if you're like if you get like you know prime kirby yates then you've got like jordan amano and like ryan baraki and rafael delise like all throwing julian merriweather like all throwing hard as hell coming out of that bullpen you know, that's just kind of what MLB pitching is right now is this war of velocity attrition. That's right. You can never have enough of it. And the Jays are going to have to make do. We'll, we'll really find out some stuff about Stephen Matz and Ross Stripling and Tanner Roark and Robbie Ray, right? This is, we're going we're gonna to find out whether, they, whether the Blue Jays were right to, to bank on this group. No doubt. Uh, let's step away. But when we come back, we'll uh, wrap up everything else going on at Blue Jays camp when we continue on At The Letters. It continues on at the letters, Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers, Christian Ryan, Mike Tassoni. We thank them as always, and we thank you for listening. Please uh, subscribe, like, share, tell your friends. We'll be here all season. All right, Ben, we got the bad news out of the way in the first half, got the injury stuff out of the way. Let's look at some good pitching news. We kind of hinted at it a little bit that like Alec Manoa, has arrived and Blue Jays fans are getting to see, you know, why the organization is so high on him. Um, you know, why people across the game are, are very excited about him. Um, and they're getting to see like a lot of the development that has occurred with Alec Manoa since he was drafted a couple of years ago in the first round. And it's like, it's not just the stuff. The stuff obviously is phenomenal. Like it's, you know, he has two big league ready weapons in his fastball and his slider. I've said on the podcast before, I've written it a million times. Like, I think this guy could get high leverage outs in the major leagues today as a reliever 
out of the bullpen. But that is not the optimal outcome for Alec Manoa. And that's not what the Blue Jays want. That's not what Alec wants. They want him to be a starter. They don't want him coming in to face like two to three batters. They want him taking two to three trips through the order. And in order to do that, you have to have different ways to get hitters out. If you're just fastball slider as a starter, um, you know, hitters just going to sit on your fastball. And then especially on days where you can't locate your slider for strikes, like you, I don't care how hard you throw, man, you're screwed. These hitters are really good. They'll hunt your fastball and they will damage it. What Alec Manoa showed against the Yankees to me was that he has different avenues to get hitters out and he has different ways to use his stuff. It was the sequencing that impressed me so much about that outing. It wasn't just that he struck out seven Yankees hitters in a row. It's that he struck them out seven different ways. You know, like he started guys with fastballs and then went to a slider. He dropped first pitch sliders for strikes and then came back with the fastball. He was locating change-ups for, for strikes, again, swing and miss with the third pitch. To me, that's the big thing that I've seen from Alec Manoa this spring is that development and that ability to attack hitters in different ways because that's what's going to allow him to be effective as a big league starter. For sure, for sure. I mean, I, I don't think there's a wrong way to strike out seven Yankees in a row. But he, <laughs> he did it, you know, the right way uh, with, as you're saying, there's some sequencing and some different pitches, you know, some, some creativity to the approach. But yeah, seven Yankees in a row struck out, retired all nine he faced. That's best case scenario. And, and it, it doesn't mean that he's major league ready. It doesn't mean that the time is now to start him in the major leagues. Like, uh, honestly, I don't know. Like, I, I wouldn't even entertain the idea of starting him in the majors. And yet, truly impressive. But to me, like, Arden, would you, like, does it even cross your mind that no. he might? Yeah. Yeah. No. Because, and, and I don't think the Blue Jays are seriously contemplating starting him in the major leagues. Obviously, they option, or not option, but they reassigned him to the minor leagues. So he will not be starting with the major league team. But, to me, it's not even a question. He needs to go to the minor leagues and he needs to work on some of those things that you can only do as a starting pitcher, which is to say, working through that lineup many times, working through his pitches and using the change up more and using all of his pitches to make sure that he's testing hitters and testing himself in as many ways as possible. Yeah, he has six appearances as a professional in games that matter. He has a few more in spring training this year, but he is, he's been in yeah. six games. He has 17 professional innings. Yeah. yeah. He's not going to break camp with the team. There's like a whole crew of prospects ahead of him. who like, sure. Like stuff wise, I'm not here to suggest that like TJ Zoic has better stuff than Alec Manoa or like Trent Thornton does or Joey Murray does, but those guys are going to get opportunities first because they are just more polished and refined as starters. And like, they have just, put in more kind of developmental sweat equity as it were could Alec Manoa be uh, an option for this club later on in the season particularly out of the bullpen absolutely for sure he could he goes off the alt site and has a you know another a strong sort of April development starts the minor league season at like double a and you know is, is puts like some hay in the barn developmentally with, with being a starter, you know, and really makes some strides, continues to refine his approach innings getting up there. And then you get to like, you know, August, September and you're the blue Jays and like, maybe you got a Jordan Romano injury or whatever. And you, you know, Kirby Yates gets hurt. You need a big arm out of the bullpen. You're in a playoff race. You're looking ahead to the playoffs for sure. You can bring in an Alec Manoa to like, just blow gas out of the bullpen and come in and, and attack the New York Yankees. He's showing you can do it great but you're you're absolutely not breaking camp with him as a starter that's crazy yeah no chance of that happening and you know i think even later in the season 
there doesn't have to be an injury for him to be someone sure. that you know could be on the radar. And we're skipping a few steps here. Like he would still have to a be healthy, which as we talked about <laughs> in the first segment, not a guarantee exactly for. Anyone. Hey, this is the conversation we were having about Nate Pearson last year. Right? Yeah, exactly. So he's got to stay healthy. That's not a given. And then beyond that, he's got to perform. And you know, doing something really impressive in spring training, it's amazing. It, it's great. Like that would be. It's probably you know. One of the more exciting moments, I would imagine, for a young pitcher to do that. Um, and certainly, he's only pitched in seven games, so it's definitely in his top seven. Um, but, uh, but it's yeah, it's a good sign. But he's still got to improve. He's still got to develop and show that he can locate in the zone, that his velocity is holding up, that he is not showing those signs of fatigue that we talk about. And if he checks those two boxes of being healthy and producing then I really do see a path to him pitching for this team in the play or not in the playoffs necessarily, but first things first, late in the season, down the stretch, maybe helping them get there. Let me pose a weird question to you as long as we're talking about first round picks and, and pitchers. Alec Manoa, as you mentioned, pretty exciting spring. I'm sure in the Blue Jays front office, they're very excited by what they've seen from Alec Manoa. Do you think that like the developmental nerds that these guys are, they're actually more excited about what TJ Zoic has shown this spring. <laughs> oh man. You know what I mean? Good, good question. Yeah, I know what you mean. No, I don't think so. No. Uh, no. <laughs> no. No. Uh, no. No. A little bit. Do you bit? think so? No. Maybe a little bit, man. Maybe. Maybe a little bit. So I remember this time last spring, TJ Zoic was throwing like 87, 88, dude. Not good. Eight, like, and I, oh, super no boy now. He was getting shelled by minor leaguers. I remember having a conversation with somebody in Dunedin when that was happening. And the, it was just kind of like, uh, we got to figure this out. Like, what is going on here? And then he went off to the alt site. It's, it's actually kind of gets back to a lot of what we were talking about in the, the first half about like movement inefficiencies. Um, like his, his mechanics were just all out of whack. Like he just was not powering through the baseball very well. And he was losing a lot of velocity. Like he was not staying back over his legs like he was relying too much on his shoulder to generate velocity like you think about it as a pitcher like in transferring that sort of energy and that force from the ground through the ball like you want it to go to start legs and then hips and then torso and then shoulder and and elbow and hand uh his shoulder was ahead of everything so he had to you know get in front of the high speed cameras and the motion capture um and work with the rapsodo and all that stuff just to like, you know, make correct those movement inefficiencies and get to a place where he could tap back into the velocity that made him a first round pick. And he also, you know, made some adjustments with his pitch mix and his usage. I think he got on a really good strength and conditioning program that helped him regain some of that velo. The moral of the story is like by the end of last season, he was throwing like 93, 94 of the Jays bullpen. The other day at camp, he's like 95, 96, which is great. Which is which is people are raving about him. So I do no kind of think within the front office, they're kind of like, ah, we're like a little bit more excited. Cause like I think the Blue Jays front office knew Alec Manoa was good and they knew his fastball was sick and his slider is legit. He's got that like cutter slider that he can tighten up for strikes or make sweepier to get swing and miss. Like I think the front office, like they knew that Alec Manoa had that. But with TJ Zoic, they were like, you know, to them, I think that's a really big organizational success story in terms of all the people who were pulled in to sort of help that process. No doubt. It looks good. Now, you know, for it to be a success story, he's got to do it in the majors. You know, it's sure. got to make a difference. Like spring training, Manoa, Zoic, like none of this counts. They, they have to do it in the majors. So now it's promising. But and I, I can see what you're saying. Like I could see how right. the Jays might in a way, you know, it's kind of like 
found money. He's a first round pick, so it's not yeah. truly found money. No, they but spent because, some money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a bonus. Because of where he, he, you know, was at, you know, let's say a year ago, to recover from that, to progress from that is significant. I still think though, Manoa, what he can do, the upside that he brings, I think there would be more excitement with him. I think we're going to get to see uh, TJ Zoy get those opportunities in the big league early in the season, in big leagues early in the season. And it should be like, just really interested to see how he responds to that. Uh, because like, that's a guy who was, you know, trending in very much the wrong direction just a, a year ago. And now it looks like, you know, maybe, maybe has, uh, you know, revived some things with his career. Yeah. So I, I don't know. That's just, uh, you know, it's nice. Nice to talk about good things, Ben. First yeah. half is all bad things. Uh, we're talking, this is the good things. So this is the good vibes segment let's keep it rolling with velocity a little bit actually but, but a different kind of velocity ben do you know who among blue jays position players leads the team in average exit velocity this spring well as a follower of at arden swelling i do know this because you tweeted it out the other day so i can tell you that it's alejandro kirk and i can tell you that you're wrong what? Uh, it's it's <laughs> Riley Adams. The thing is, he's only got three balls. In the oh, okay. <laughs> so well, I, I said that is too small of a sample. Yeah. Let's make it uh, much more statistically significant at 10. <laughs> right? <laughs> Again, spring training samples, very small. But yes, minimum 10 balls in play. Alejandro Kirk is leading an exit velocity. Riley Adams has some edge, but with only three. But also, if, if I just arbitrarily move that endpoint up to 11, Alejandro Kirk's out because he only has 10 balls in play. And then it's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. who like is legitimately spraying missiles all over the diamond. Yes. But we're here to talk about Alejandro Kirk. Everything coming off of his bat is a rocket. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, last couple episodes, like spring training results don't matter. Like, you know, I like Bravik Valeric could hit 700. Like, Joe Panic could go 100 for 100. <laughs> I don't know how much is going to help him. Uh, but when you look at that process stuff, right, and you look at, you know, velo for pitchers, spin rate for pitchers, and you look at exit velo for, for hitters, that's good to see. Like, that yep. tells you something. And so the fact that Alejandro Kirk is, uh, you know, just barreling the ball consistently, I don't know how much that's going to do for him, but it beats the alternative then this spring. Yeah, it does. So let's advance the discussion here because we talked about it a few weeks ago and we kind of made the case or at least presented the case for keeping Reese McGuire on the major league roster. Now, two weeks away from opening day. So let's start with the caveats here that, all right, we don't know what's going to happen. Injuries could occur. Danny Jansen or Reese McGuire or Alejandro Kirk could get hurt and that would change things. So the Jays are not going to make a decision until they absolutely have to. But if things kind of unfold like this, where do you stand? Has your opinion shifted? And where does your opinion sit right now with respect to who the Jays should roster at that position? Well, it's different between what they're going to do and like what I would do. I think they're going to carry Kirk to begin the season. Like yeah, I think, I think so too. Yeah. I think that's what they are going to yeah. do. And I think Reese McGuire will be exposed to waivers yeah. as things stand right now. So, still so you would do a different things to change. I cannot, and I've been thinking about this a lot, Ben, like, because of, you know, just kind of understanding that Kirk's probably going to be the guy. Like, I, I just cannot get it out of my head that like you need to prioritize depth. Interesting. And I don't know, man, because like, look, there's there's also a part of me that's just like, hey, man, let the best players play, right? Yeah. Like, and to me, Alejandro Kirk is a much better hitter than Reese McGuire. So like, hey, he's he's earned it, and the best players should be at the highest level in the majors. But I can't get it out of my head that like you put. Reese McGuire on waivers at the end of spring. The Pittsburgh Pirates pick him up. Now you're down to four catchers on your 40. Danny Jansen takes a foul tip in the opening series and has to miss six weeks. And now you're down to like Kirk Adams Moreno. 
and that's your catching depth chart. I would feel, look, if the Blue Jays went out and signed Tyler Flowers, I'd be like, all right, yeah, no problem, right? Like you built, you got that other, that extra added layer of depth. But as things stand right now, without a Flowers or without a Matt Weeders on hand, it's like it's tenuous. It's thin depth, and this catching depth could go from like somewhat deep to real real thin real real quick if if you have some some tough circumstances it could it could now okay let's let's stay with the weeders and flowers as i try to persuade you to my viewpoint which is that yeah if you lose reese mcguire it's okay that's my thesis here so if the blue jays enter the situation that that you're outlining and danny jansen is hurt and reese mcguire is claimed I actually think in that situation, because Flowers and Weeders are both free agents, you call up Scott Boris, who reps Weeders. You say, yeah. you got a major league deal for Matt. We would love to have him on this team. He's got a roster spot. It's a $1.5 million guarantee. And he, Weeders takes that. You oh, know? for sure. Yeah. If somebody doesn't sign him before then, if someone right. else doesn't have an injury right. before then, right? Like, right. Like, get one of these guys in now, <laughs> which I understand is hard yeah. to do on a minor league deal without like clear opportunity to offer that. Exactly. But as long as those guys are out there, I mean, you can, you still have that as an option. Like, it's not like the, the catching market is totally, totally dry at this point. No. And also, so where did Caleb Joseph end up going? Philly, Mets. I think. Mets, yeah. So you could also call up the Mets and just trade for Caleb Joseph. Yes, right. You could trade right. for somebody. So you could do that. So yeah, no, you would have those opportunities. You would certainly feel more comfortable if the guy had actually been in camp with you and had actually been like working with your your pitchers and your staff. And you know, in the case of Flowers and Weeders, like what kind of game shape are those guys in? Yeah. Like how much are they hitting? Like right, the hitting would be tough for them. Right? What type really of exposure tough. to yeah. velocity have, have they had? Like, I know Boris will get his guys in front of some high-speed pitching yep. machines and stuff, but it's not the same as, like, being, no. you know, in spring games or even in a live BP set, you know, environment with a real live arm on the mound. But at the same time, though, like, the alternative is, all right, you've got Reese McGuire at the plate. So you have yeah. a rusty Matt Weeders. How often? A, how often is Reese McGuire at the plate over those first two weeks of the no, season? No, in, in what I'm saying is in the situation that Danny Jansen is injured, Right, right. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, no, you'd have all 100 Kirk at the plate. Yeah, but right. either way, you have Kirk at the plate then. Well, yeah, I mean, like, my thing is having carrying Kirk on the the opening day roster for the first week or two of the yep. season, how many wins is that going to impact? Like, how Marginal. often is he going to hit? Your lineup is already super, super deep. Yeah, You're already going to score a gang of runs. Like, how much is that really moving the needle Versus maintaining your depth and having, you know, a McGuire around in case, you know, Jansen goes down and then you're just bringing Kirk off the taxi squad. You can split time with those two guys. I think Reese McGuire is still a really good defender. And I still think that there is utility to that on a big league roster. And there is value to having that on the big league roster. Although I must say, like, I have been, you know, taken by how many pitchers this spring have like sung Alejandro Kirk's praises behind the plate like it's always kind of been the knock on him right is that like obviously the like the bat is majorly capable you know like we've so it's it's not a huge sample 25 plate appearances last year and you know 10 spring training balls in play but he, i haven't seen him struggle against big league pitching yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen but it looks like a big league bat but is the defense big league and is the game calling big league and all that so like reese mcguire is ahead of him in those aspects 
but I have been taken by, you know, guys like Robbie Ray and Tarot are coming out this, this spring and kind of saying like, no, like I actually like throwing to this guy and this guy's actually got some skill back there. So I just can't get out of, you know, the, the headspace or the, the thought that it's a six month season and you got to think about the entire race, the entire relay race rather than just the first leg of it. Right now, I guess, you know, thinking about this through like a kind of replacement level type lens here. So if we accept that because Reese McGuire has some defensive skills, he has familiarity with the pitchers and he has, you know, he's faced live pitching recently. So he's more warmed up than a guy who's, who's on the free agent market. So there's something there. There's some value there that's above and beyond what you're just going to get. If you try to claim someone on waivers, if you try to scrape together a trade, but if we accept that that replacement level does exist and that the Blue Jays, if they really had to, could come up with a catcher somewhere if a couple of their guys got hurt and they were desperate, then I just I don't think that the upgrade that McGuire provides over that guy is so big. You know, that's that's kind of why I land where I do is because I don't see a huge upgrade that McGuire offers. No, it's also possible that the Blue Jays, you know, feel confident that McGuire is going to get through waivers. Like we're yeah. kind of assuming someone's going to claim him, which like, I don't know, he's a youngish catcher, right? Strong 26. defender. You know, like the, you would think that a team somewhere would have room for that on their 40, but maybe the Blue Jays, you know, know better than we do. And I say, no, we, we think this guy's going to get through, which is like for the Blue Jays, best case scenario, because then you just put him on your taxi squad or you send him to the alt site and you have Riley Adams on the taxi squad, either or, and you, you have Kirk and, and Jansen, the majors and great. You know, the, the thing with April that's tricky is there aren't minor league games so it's you can't even make the case anymore that like well kirk would be better you know benefited by going to triple a and playing every day there is no triple a in april he's going to be going to he's either going to be on your taxi squad and really not get much development at all or he's going to be um at the alt site you know live bp and sim games which just like is not the same so you know the best place developmentally like possibly is the big leagues in april it is. So, all right. So I, I, I am at this point on the side of just take Kirk. Are you still take McGuire or have, have, I, have I shifted that all at all? Where are you at? I don't think that it will end up mattering for, you know, as much as we're talking about it, you right. know, for no, as much course. of a discussion yeah. as it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of feels like one of those things that just isn't yeah. going to like, it's just one of those spring topics that we yes. talk about endlessly. And it's like, a fun discussion, but yeah. no, it's Remember not that year where we season. talked endlessly about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and when his debut would be in yeah. like service time and he just ended up getting hurt. <laughs> it was all moot. And it was like, oh my God, how many hours do we talk about this? It, it feels like one of those things. Yeah, I should be less of a, you know, organizational ghoul i should just say put the best players in the big leagues let let the kids play man let the kids play there's a legit case to be made on the other side for keeping depth like i don't i don't think it's like i think it's a reasonable argument i, I it's interesting i ran a poll just out of curiosity on twitter this week 84 percent, 85 percent of people said they would take kirk yeah, as a fan, you should yeah. want to see Kirk. He's the exciting young prospect, and he's fun to watch, and he's like already a fan favorite. Like, who doesn't like watching him play, right? It's, of course. As a fan, I don't care about your depth, you know? Well, I, you know, it's interesting, though, that even that one out of every six people was saying, you know, that they would rather have McGuire. So there is, yeah. there are a lot of people who see it the way you do. Yeah. <laughs> Not as many as who <laughs> no. just want to see the really fun player play baseball yeah. at the highest level, which is, uh, you know, is the best argument, I will say. I'll say those people are right. You should want to see the most fun players playing in MLB. So we should all want. Final topic. 
Charlie Montoya, Blue Jays picked up the club option on his contract, which will keep him uh, as the or at least contracted to be the Toronto Blue Jays manager through the 2022 season. He signed a three-year deal plus an option originally. Blue Jays picked it up. Obviously, uh, you know, a quote-unquote vote of confidence, you know, as people in our business like to say. This clearly means the Blue Jays are happy with the job that Charlie Montoya is doing. I guess my question in these discussions always been is like, how should we, how should fans, how should analysts, how should outsiders be evaluating managers in the modern game? Do we even have the ability to, because what we actually see of the manager of in-game decision-making, uh, you know, for three hours on a nightly basis is like friggin' five to 10% of what these guys do throughout a day and what these guys are evaluated on by their superiors in the front office. It's a 24-7 job. I mean, once the season starts, once you're on that on-ramp, like it, it never ends. Same for coaches, same for anyone around the team. I mean, it's just, it's totally never-ending. And so absolutely, we do not see anything close to everything. I guess to start, definitely does suggest that there's a level of confidence from the organization in Charlie Montoyo. And, you know, I, I thought of Rick Renteria as soon as this happened because sometimes teams have like a transition manager who comes in and he takes over the team, a young team, and he's there when the team is trying to turn that corner and he has to deal with Alan Hansen and Socrates Brito and Ryan Fugerben. <laughs> and then by the time they're ready to win, in comes Joe Madden, in comes Tony La Russa, and Rick Renteria in those cases was canned. And in neither case was it, you know, because he appeared to be negligent, but it was just the decisions that those ownership groups and front offices made. And that's not the only time that's happened. That happens across baseball. It happens across sports. And in this case, the Jays are sticking with Charlie Montoyo for at least a couple of years. And so it's interesting. I don't think this means that there is any diminishment in pressure that he faces. Managers are hired to be fired. Charlie Montoyo will be fired one day. And so it's just a question of when. That's a fact. But, you know, it is no you know? i was gonna say knowing charlie like and how long he grinded in the minors yeah. to get here it's not like he's gonna walk away from his first big league job unless he has a very compelling reason to do so <laughs> he'll do yeah. his job probably pretty yeah. much as long as they'll let him yeah exactly and so that means he's gonna get fired you know yeah. or there's gonna be a parting of ways whatever whatever you want to call it that's the nature of being a man major league manager like that is what these guys sign up for it's a tough gig there's a lot of pressure and that's the world that he's in but for now, he has a very good team. He has the confidence of the front office. He's got a coaching staff that you know, is, is also expected to stay in place and, and have some stability. So that's a really exciting place for him to be. And you, know, you have to respect the amount of adversity that this team went through last year, the amount of positivity that, that he had set aside the season and the fact that the Jays were homeless. But 2020 was a tough year, I think, across the board for most people. You know, it's almost an exception if you were able to stay positive throughout that. And Charlie Montoya was able to somehow. So, you know, yeah. we'll give him credit for that and see where it goes. But, you know, that's a it is a vote of confidence for him. Yeah, and it's tough to know what else to say because, like, we, you know, we don't see him in the clubhouse and we don't see him communicating with you know, everybody in the organization. Like, we don't see so much of his job, right? And, like, really, you know, the in game decision making, like, the baseline expectation in 2021 is that you're going to make the appropriate, you know, probabilistic calls in game. Like, every manager should be able to do that. And I think that so much of, 
the job as manager now is like not only you know it's managing down certainly to you know the personalities in your clubhouse and your players right and it's utilizing you know your your eq and not just your iq but it's also how you manage up and it's how you manage the front office uh, you know and the gm uh, and you know the agm who's, who's sending you texts and the analytics people who are giving you ideas right it's that's the like quote unquote collaboration that we hear the blue jays talk about that means like okay so how are you pulling in the info you're getting from r&d and from the analysts like how are you communicating with the training staff and sort of understanding workload management and fatigue like what do you know about the you know what's going on in the minors and how you know close contact are you keeping with the minor league coordinators and like who might be able to help this team down the line right and then like how do you kind of pull in all that information from all these different areas and then message that to your players right and because i think that ultimately in 2021, like you just as, as a club, you just want a manager who's going to put the players in position to do their best and to fulfill their potential and to perform. Because like every MLB ball player has a lot of talent and a lot of skill and a lot of ability. Like you don't get to this level if you don't. It's the highest level um, in, in the game. So I think that for a manager, their job so much today, both on the field and off, by the way, putting them in positions on field, but also putting them in positions off the field to make them feel comfortable, to build an environment where they, you know, where they want to come to the field every day and where they feel their best and where they're happy and they're in a good headspace and they're feeling positive and welcomed and, and they feel like their, you know, concerns are heard. They feel like they can come into your office and talk to you about things. They feel encouraged. You know, they don't feel like as soon as they slump, they're going to be, you know, sent off to the minors or they're going to be benched. Um, like I know a lot of stuff can kind of be nebulous, but like, to me, that's sort of like, the difference maker as a manager is can you get your players to perform at their absolute best? And, you know, as an outsider, I have no idea how to measure that or analyze that. But but I think clearly, you know, if the picking up of his option tells us anything, it's that the Blue Jays feel Montoya is doing it well. Yeah. And it's such an interesting job. Like, I think because of all those facets that you mentioned, like, it's just, it's honestly such a fascinating role to have. And you think about, I mean, I'm sure everyone listening has probably had weeks at work where they're like, man, I just, just burnt out. You know, I had I, a lot of work to do or I have too many emails or too many meetings. Well, Charlie Montoya has emails and he has meetings too. Then he manages a game at night. Then, okay, after that Monday to Friday, he does it Saturday and then Sunday. And look, no one's saying that, that this isn't a great job and a dream job for him. No question. He's well compensated for it. That's great. But it is a grind. Like it is definitely a grind. It's a, a very challenging job. But those, cha- I mean, for us on the outside, we don't know exactly what goes in, but I find it very interesting to think about that role of major league manager. Oh, absolutely. And there's, there's always something, right? Like there's always something going on. Some pitchers always got an issue or the you know, opposition player's not happy. Or the, like you got 26 guys in that clubhouse and you got all the guys in the taxi squad. You got all your coaches, everybody in the front office. Like you get, you, there is so much managing that happens like, 360 not just like towards uh which who which reliever am i going to bring in in this spot plus how would you like it arden if someone did a podcast about our podcast and they're just talking about you know whether we had the right topics and you know second guessing every (laughs) interjection and every title that we you know like it's yeah there's a lot of scrutiny and again comes with the territory i'm not saying otherwise but um but yeah very high stress job 
And it's also not to say that like you you can't you know criticize managers. Like no. on this podcast, we've been criticized uh, critical criticized of, Charlie of Charlie, yeah, of bunt decisions, right? Lineup and, card that doesn't have the right players on it. Yeah, that's a bad mistake. Right? Of course, I was giving him uh, like old school grief last year because he wasn't yeah. getting fired up enough. Right? True, <laughs> I like that, that take. I you know what? I still agree with that take. Yeah. yeah. When uh, was it like Rowdy or, or Vlad got like a quick trigger elect, uh, ejection for like no reason on a ball strike call? But yeah. you know, probably Vic Carapazza or, or actually, well, was that issue when Vic Carapazza like just issued like a blanket ejection to the yeah. dugout or someone had to go? Dante ended up, yeah, yeah, right. Dante ended up getting it, and I was yeah. like, so wait, you don't even have like a particular stimulus or individual or event that you are you're just issuing a blanket ejection? That's not how this works. As much as, you know, Charlie running out there and throwing a temper tantrum wouldn't have done anything beyond just like demonstrative like theatrics, like I do think it's better than the alternative, like the potential negative impact of your players questioning like why you weren't yeah. sticking up for them, right? Oh, so like, I, yeah, I've, I've issued those those criticisms for sure. You can, I want to see Charlie get fired up this year. <laughs> I hope this is the year that he gets tossed like once a month. It's so great. Manager ejections are just so fun. You talk to guys who had him in the minors and they say like he was that guy. Like he was like fiery, like would scream and yell and go after umps. Um, and he is kind of like softened a little bit as he's gone to the majors. I, I don't know if we're gonna see him, no. you know. I'm I'm kidding more of that. Oh, half all kidding. right. <laughs> half, half kidding. Half kidding. <laughs> I don't know. There's also, by the way, like it's funny as a manager, you are like the primary spokesperson for the organization when you think about it, right? Like you talk to the media every single day nobody else in the organization talks to the media every single day like you have to i was talking about messaging things to players it's charlie like he has to message things to to us and then through us to fans right like he's a they're like add that on top of all the other things you have to do as a manager you have to think about like being a press secretary every day and oh, yeah. you know think about all the stakeholders who are listening to what you're saying in the media right and there's like us and we're gonna pick it apart and fans are gonna jump all over what you say players players their players representation is gonna hear mm -hmm. things and not like it and now they're texting ross atkins like what's why is charlie saying this like there there's so many ways that things can go wrong with like yeah. a soundbite ownership as somebody who speaks on a microphone every once in a while, I can tell you, like, it's not so easy. Right. <laughs> right? And yet, and yet we're only speaking, of, we're, we're not speaking on behalf of all of Sportsnet, you know, no. like that would be, if we had to do that twice a day, that'd be tiring. That'd be a challenging, challenging job. No, I have enough trouble speaking on behalf of myself. So, right. Uh, everybody's mileage is going to vary, but I think that like the, the job of a manager in 2021 is just like a lot harder than it was, you know. 10 20 yeah. 30 years ago and i think it's always important to remember that what you see on tv is just a fraction of what that individual does throughout their day in that role for sure that's gonna be it for us uh he's ben nicholson smith he's on twitter at b nicholson smith i'm arden zwelling i am on twitter at arden zwelling our producers as always are mike tassoni and christian ryan we thank them very much for their hard work we thank you for listening we'll talk to you next week on at the letters.